Here First is sponsored by UCS Healthcare, offering compassionate healthcare for all. Learn more about their services, including statewide access to medication-assisted treatment for alcohol and opioid use disorders at ucsonline.org. Today is Thursday. It's the 28th of September. This is Here First from IPR News. I'm Clay Masters. Governor Kim Reynolds is promising another round of tax cuts as she reports a $1.8 billion budget surplus from the past fiscal year. The Republican governor made the announcement yesterday. She says she views it as an overcollection of taxes from Iowans and has previously said she wants to get rid of the state income tax by the end of her current term as governor. Iowa also has $902 million in reserve funds and $2.74 billion in its taxpayer relief fund, which may only be used to reduce taxes. Reynolds says she looks forward to cutting taxes again next legislative session. Meanwhile, Senator Janet Peterson of Des Moines, the top-ranking Democrat on the Senate Appropriations Committee, says the governor's tax plans favor corporations and special interests. With the federal government shutdown looming this weekend, Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley says it's, quote, idiocy to be going through this process again. The U.S. Senate has put together a bipartisan package that's designed to temporarily fund the government, but indications are the House likely won't be able to finish its work before Saturday's deadline. Grassley says he can't predict what will happen. The Senate this week is going to concentrate on just the government not shutting down and hopefully pass a bill. Uh, without waiting to see what the House is going to do. Grassley says the House is making a serious attempt to avert a shutdown while the Senate's stopgap measure should be finished tomorrow in plenty of time to meet the deadline. A health care clinic in Cedar Falls has partnered with three other states to provide care after a statewide bill restricting LGBTQ care has become enforceable. IPR's Grant Leo Winterer has more. The partnership between Cedar Falls Unity Point Clinic and those in Minnesota, Illinois, and Wisconsin comes as a response to a statewide measure restricting hormone therapy and puberty blockers for those under 18. Rachel Benson is a primary health care provider with the Cedar Falls Clinic. She says that the regional network is an essential bright spot for the marginalized community. You know, we've definitely tried to work to make sure that while we're facing very scary and uncertain times that we can be a beacon of hope that we're going to continue to help these patients get the care they need just in a different fashion than what we were doing previously. Benson and her clinicians are part of three clinics in the state of Iowa that specialize in LGBT youth care. The labor union representing graduate assistants at the University of Iowa is demanding higher wages. They say the minimum $26,000 salary isn't enough. Natalie McClellan is a third-year Ph.D. student and is the press and publicity chairperson for COGS, that's the Graduate Student Worker Union, at the UI. Our demand was to keep up with inflation, but keeping up with inflation, which, you know, can go up and down, it's not accounting for what it would actually take to um, have a living wage. The union and the Board of Regents agreed to the 26000 minimum last March during negotiations. A spokesperson for the Regents says these were informed by comparable Big Ten peer institutions. McClellan emphasized that the demands do not reopen those negotiations. The union is using MIT's living wage calculator that accounts for costs like transportation and housing in the county. Assuming a 40-hour work week, it says a single person with no children in Johnson County needs a pre-tax salary of $35,000. And University of Iowa basketball star Caitlin Clark would likely be the top choice in the next WNBA draft, according to ESPN. That is, if she decides to go pro after the upcoming college basketball season. 
The Des Moines Register reports the Indiana Fever are considered the team with the best chance of landing the top pick in the draft. It's not certain Clark will be in the next WNBA draft. She could choose to return for a fifth season at the University of Iowa. This is Here First from IPR News. I'm Clay Masters. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The Mississippi River is a transportation powerhouse. Some 60% of U.S. grain exports float down that river. But a lot of the infrastructure that supports barge shipping is old and needs updating. Eric Schmidt of St. Louis Public Radio reports this pivotal moment has some wondering if those investments are worthwhile given how climate change is affecting the Mississippi. On a recent sunny day near St. Louis, a towboat slowly maneuvers 15 barges tied together down the Mississippi. The whole vessel is about a quarter mile long, and the barges are filled with either animal feed or oil products. But barges can move a lot of other goods, too. Rubber, scrap metal, resin for polymers like paints, varnishes, glues. Paul Rohde is the Midwest Region Vice President for the Waterways Council, an organization that advocates for barge transportation. It's all about capacity. He says it would take more than a thousand semi-trucks to carry the same load as 15 barges. Barges move products with a, a much lower carbon footprint than rail, or certainly trucks. Rody cites a Texas A&M study from 2022 that finds overall the carbon footprint of barge shipping is nine times smaller than trucking, and it's about half that of rail, which is why Rody says we need to ship more things by barge. But Olivia Dorothy with American Rivers isn't as sure. She says that system-wide analysis of emissions misses the nuances of moving goods on different waterways. Just like cars, you've got different fuel economies and emissions when you drive in the city versus when you drive on the highway. And we believe that's the same thing for our rivers. These are important distinctions, Dorothy says, because the Mississippi River changes a lot. For example, going downriver here near St. Louis, it's the last place where barges go through a lock and dam. The lock is like an elevator. Barges going downstream come in and are lowered to the water level in front of the dam. It's a process that takes time. And in terms of carbon emissions, it's sort of like a truck idling at a toll booth. And it's one reason the environmental advantages are in question. But Dorothy says there's another reason, too. These dams that we have to facilitate navigation are themselves emitting large amounts of methane. She says they slow down the river's flow, meaning things like leaves, tree limbs, dead fish, or algae settle in the riverbed and break down. If that sediment is disturbed by anything, that methane then becomes released into the atmosphere. But just how much of the greenhouse gas isn't clear. No one's ever done the mass balance. Jonathan Remo is a professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale who studies how humans affect large rivers. He's working on a model of the methane emitted from the dozens of locks and dams along the Mississippi north of St. Louis. 
Without that information, Remo says we don't have a full picture of how green barges really are. Not having the complete information is like getting a loan and not having what the uh, interest rate is. And it's not just the Mississippi River with locks and dams. Rivers like the Illinois and Ohio, even the Columbia and Lower Snake in the Northwest have them too. Many of them are in dire need of updates or repairs. The federal government is spending billions of dollars on infrastructure for ports and waterways to keep these transportation systems running. Remo says he hopes his research will be a tool to help manage our rivers and other countries. That may want to develop their rivers like we have here in the United States and have the whole cost accounting of what that could potentially mean for their greenhouse gas footprint. He says it's a way to know with more certainty if barges are a solid climate solution for the shipping industry. I'm Eric Schmid in St. Louis. This is Here First from IPR News. You can find this podcast wherever you subscribe to them. I'm Clay Masters. Thanks for listening. 